nice group here tonight. Appreciate your faithfulness and coming. Thank you, Mrs. Bookmoyer, for your ministry in music. First time I was able to say that. I'll probably be referring to her as Azure Herb numerous times, but I've got it right tonight. So congratulations to Caleb and Azure. Tonight, as we look to the Word of God, we are beginning our study of the individual churches. The first church that is found is the church in Ephesus. And uh, there's a, a form that we're going to uh, pretty much follow as we look at each church. It's these uh, main numerals, the description of Christ, the praise for the church, the rebuke of the church, the remedy for the church, consequence of continued unrepentance, the uh, promise for the conqueror. So that's pretty much the way we're going to look at each of these churches. All but one church received praise. One does not receive uh, praise, and, and we'll look at that in more detail as we get to the individual churches. Uh, we begin by looking at the description of Christ, and uh, actually, before we get even to that, if you look at Revelation 2, 1, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. I've had a number of people say to me, what does that mean, the angel of the church? Uh, so uh, I don't have that on my sheet, but let me uh, address that. Um, don't know exactly what that means, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. There are four uh, answers that are basically given to that. Uh, one of the questions is, uh, how do we understand the word angel? Uh, the uh, Greek word is angelos, so you can easily see where angel comes from. It's just a transliteration of the word angelos. Angelos means messenger. And uh, a messenger can be an earthly messenger, or it can be a heavenly messenger. So it can be a human being, or it can be uh, a spiritual being. Uh, so um, depending on what you think that is, uh, whether it be a human being or a spiritual being, if it's a human being, uh, the most common explanation is that this is written to the person who carried the letter to that particular church. So the angel to the church in Ephesus would be the human being that was the courier uh, that took the letter from John to the church in Ephesus. So if it's a human being, that tends to be the most popular uh, interpretation. <coughs> Some see uh, the angel of the church to be the, the preacher of the church, uh, the proclaimer, the one who brings the message. Uh, so the spiritual leader of the church, uh, I, the, the uh, third issue is that this is 
a spiritual being that has um, been dispatched to uh, each of the seven churches, and then some understand it just to be the spiritual realm in general. Uh, I don't know uh, which one of those uh, is what is referred to. Uh, you can think about that. You can ponder it. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to say much more because there's not any way to figure it out. So I'm just moving on. And looking at the description of Christ. There are two very slight deviations from the description in 2.1 from the description given in the vision of chapter 1. In the vision of chapter 1 verse 16, the word holds is a much, uh, oh, excuse me, the word holds in chapter 2 verse 1 is much stronger than the word used in Revelation 1.16. Even though they're both translated into English as the word hold or held, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars. So it's translated the same way, but there are two different Greek words that are used. In chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the word for the one who holds uh, the seven stars in his right hand is a much stronger word. We might use the word grip, uh, or we might use the word clench. Uh, the aspect is to have a, a firm hold on the churches, where the other might speak of like an, uh, an open hand in which uh, you are holding something in your hand. So it's the difference between this and this, all right? Uh, so uh, it's talking about the firmness which he holds the seven stars in his hand. Secondly, here Christ is seen as walking among the churches, where in Revelation 1.13, Christ is simply present with the churches. If you look at Revelation 2.1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And of course, the seven golden lampstands, it tells us, uh, are the seven churches. Whereas in Revelation 1.13, it says, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man. So the emphasis in uh, Revelation 2.1 is on his active care and love for the churches. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So I will walk among you, and... I will be your God and you will be my people. Now we know, of course, that God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere. So we are to see in this metaphor of walking amidst of his people, God visiting his people, if you will. God coming to his people. Uh, <coughs> God <coughs> being actively engaged with your people. It says in Leviticus 1 16, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I am the one who visited you. I am the one who helped you. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this imagery of walking among the churches 
helps us to understand what is meant when it is said, I will come to you. In Revelation 2, verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The coming is not a reference to the second coming. So when he says, I would come to you, he's not talking about a second coming when he's coming to the earth. Uh, it is a continuation of this idea that um, it is associated with Christ's oversight connected with his walking among the churches. So I will visit you. I will come to you. Uh, I will judge you. I will uh, actively be engaged in your life. So there's praise for the church. Christ praises the church for their hard work. I know your works, that is their deeds. I know your deeds, and now this word, your toil. Your toil uh, speaks of hard, uh, arduous labor. Christ praises the church for their perseverance, their patient endurance how they continue on under hardship and difficulty. Uh, they put up with a lot. They patiently endure. Christ praises the church for not putting up with false apostles. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Uh, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So the evil ones are equated with those that call themselves apostles. So the evil is trying to pass themselves off as God's representatives, as God's sent ones, as uh, God's messengers to the church at Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, we know that there were many false apostles. For it tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So there were a lot of people in the uh, New Testament era that tried to exercise the same kind of authority in the church as Christ's 12 apostles did. They tried to put themselves on the same uh, status as a Peter or as a Paul. And remember, of course, that these apostles, as they represent Christ, are also uh, authoring, under the inspiration of Scripture, uh, binding letters to the churches. Uh, so they have extreme authority. But these... Uh, People in Ephesus have tried those that are false apostles and they recognize them for that. Okay? They, they're discerning. Uh, they listen to what these false apostles are teaching and they are able to say, that's not right. That's not true. Uh, that's not in keeping uh, with uh, the word of God. And so they don't put up with it. They, they don't allow them to continue. All right? They... they block them off, they shut them out, uh, they kick them out, whatever the case may be, but they don't allow that 
false teaching to continue in their midst. Uh, and so they're praised for that discernment and their unwillingness to let these false uh, apostles be successful. Christ praises the church for putting up with hardship for the advancement of Christ's cause. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And the word bear is in both verses two and three. So they do not bear with the false apostles, but they do bear with uh, other people by patiently enduring for his name's sake. Uh, so as far as Christ is concerned, they put up with persecution, they put up with hardship, they put up with difficulty, they put up with other people putting them through these difficult things, but they don't put up with the false apostles. Okay? And so they're praised, again, for a discernment and how they are staying true to God for his name's sake, uh, meaning for his honor and his glory. They want to promote Jesus Christ. And so they are putting up with all of this difficulty that they are facing. And then finally, Christ praises the church for not quitting. And you've not grown weary. Uh, it's a, a, a picture of getting so tired that you just drop out of the race. Uh, you know, you, you sometimes uh, see uh, people that uh, they're in some kind of endurance run and they begin to get tired and they get the side stitches, they get the shin splints and eventually they just stop running. So they are praised for not stopping in their run. They are enduring. So, observations. First, there is much to be said for steadfastness in doing the Lord's work. Uh, they're being praised repeatedly for their tireless commitment to doing the Lord's work. Uh, that is praiseworthy in the church. When, when people are continuing on despite hardship, despite difficulty, despite persecution, despite people not encouraging them, despite a lot of things going wrong, despite not feeling well, despite so many things. Uh, it isn't always easy to serve the Lord. It is easy to grow tired, weary, and want to quit. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, for people to want to throw up their hands and say, you know, I've been doing this for a lot of years, and uh, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore. Uh, it, it's praiseworthy when people year after year, uh, decade after decade, are continuing on in their service for the Lord. That requires perseverance. Uh, that is not easy. Okay? There's, there's battles you have to fight. There's mountains you have to climb. Uh, it takes courage. It takes grit. Uh, so, number three, it's praiseworthy to be continually keeping on. Um, that's interesting and needs to be kept in perspective when we look at the rebuke of the church. For there's a balance in this passage that's very important. Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. The Ephesians, though working hard and remaining faithful to their husband Christ, 
have found themselves in a loveless marriage. When it's talking about the love you had at first, uh, I believe it's basically talking about the love that they had for Christ, that he was the love of their life. And they had abandoned that love uh, to some degree. So I refer to it as a, as a loveless marriage. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Talking about the children of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. How they had this devotion for Christ, for God when they were young. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, their love for God grew cold over a period of time. Uh, so it appears to be here. I'm talking about people that were on fire, if you will, for the Lord. That had a great love and appreciation. And uh, somehow, that has grown cold. <coughs> Osborne, in his commentary, says this. It is clear that the Ephesians loved truth more than they loved God or one another. This does not mean that they were not believers or that they had no love at all, for the commendations of verses 2 and 3 would be impossible in that case. Rather, their early love had grown cold and been replaced with a harsh zeal for orthodoxy. It is hard to maintain balance in the Christian life. One of the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is that he's a revealer of the person of God. And John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, many times people err on the side of either grace or truth. They err on the side of being so gracious to people that they no longer hold on to the truth. They don't fight for the truth. Uh, they, they aren't willing to stand up for the truth. Well, that's not the Ephesians, okay? Uh, they're full of truth. They're interested in truth. Uh, they, we're going to see, are against the Nicolaitans in just a moment. These are people that will not tolerate uh, deception, will not tolerate lies. Uh, they are fighters for the truth. But it does appear that grace has kind of gone by the wayside. And they have become harsh, they have become critical, and uh, in their perseverance have lost some of the joy that's associated with that hard work and that labor. Uh, they have kind of mustered up a, a strength uh, to keep on, but it isn't really out of a love for Christ. So be under page four, we must be careful that our love for Christ is not exchanged for a dutiful commitment absent of a real love for Christ. It is easy to fall into the rut of working hard and doing what is right without a real joy and appreciation. I have here, once again, an illustration of a marriage. Uh, unfortunately, over time, uh, marital partners grow apart. And uh, they don't have the love that they had when they were first married. They are still committed to each other. They, they still live under the same roof. 
uh, they still carry on marital duties. They, you know, cook. They uh, mow lawn. They uh, provide for the family. Uh, but it's done without a real motivation of love. There, there, there's not a joy in it anymore. There's, there's only this sense of responsibility and commitment. And it's wonderful to have responsibility and commitment, and that's praised. But it's sad when it's absent love. And that's really what he's speaking of in this passage. I hope that made some kind of sense to you. Remedy for the church. Then reflect upon the spiritual highs. For it says, from where you have fallen in their initial relationship to Christ. Remember, therefore, <coughs> fallen. <coughs> Sometimes we talk about, uh, in the Christian faith, mountaintop experiences. Have you ever heard that, that phrase, that you're on the mountaintop? Okay, things are just going great, and you're excited, and, and uh, you love the word of God, you love... Christ, and, and uh, you know, you just feel blessed. You feel like uh, it's a real privilege to serve him, and you're in a spiritual high. Well, you can get to spiritual lows. Uh, and uh, look at what used to be viewed as a privilege and an honor, now as a duty, a responsibility, uh, something that we are just uh, trudging through with. So it says that we are to remember from where we have fallen. Uh, Remember how much you were in love in the early days of your relationship to Christ. Go back to those early times in which uh, you just loved to hear the word of God. Uh, You were so grateful for your salvation. Uh, You had this sense of God's blessing upon you, and you were delighted in the fact that you could be a child of God. Remember what it was like when we first received Jesus Christ as our Savior. So they are to repent. Revelation 2 5. Uh, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Uh, Mounts, in his commentary in the book of Revelation, says this Bear in mind the loving relationships you once enjoyed and make a clean break with your present manner of life. Uh, So get off this treadmill and go back to that uh, love that you originally had. <clears throat> They're to go back and do things as they did them previously, Revelation 2.5. <coughs> <coughs> Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. The things they did at first were those that resulted from their initial response of love, again, from Mounts. It is not so much that they were, are to do entirely different things, for they are praised for what they are doing. However, they are to do these things with a renewed motivation of love for Christ. So it isn't so much that outwardly they're going to look a whole lot different, but inwardly the motivation changes dramatically. That the reason they are to do this is, is for Christ. Paul thanked God for the Thessalonians because their labor was motivated by a love for Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and following, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, 
constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, that is work motivated by faith, labor of love, that is labor motivated by love, and steadfastness motivated by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that aspect of labor motivated by love, that's what they're called to go back to. This labor that now, uh, that is being do, sent, do uh, solely out of sense of duty, uh, do it for the love of Christ. Now, what I want to uh, emphasize is that there are, there's a spectrum, if you will, of uh, not having a love for Christ. Um, degrees, if, if you will. And so it is possible, when we think of a church as a whole, that at one time preached the gospel and a true love for Christ degrades to a point where they still have activities and programs that are a continuance of their tradition but no longer are motivated by saving faith. In other words, you can get to the place where there's no love at all in the church any longer. There's, there's no longer a preaching of the gospel. Uh, there's no longer saving faith. There, there's no longer truth. And uh, we can look at churches and realize that indeed that happens. And uh, we all know churches uh, that still up and running. <laughs> they still have Sunday schools. They, they still have dinners. Uh, they still have people to clean the church. They still have people singing the choir. They have people that are doing things that people who love God do, but they're not motivated by true love of Christ any longer, but they're motivated by something else. So the warning is, don't continue down that road, okay? Uh, don't move. And remember that we're talking to a church, not just individuals. Uh, and so the warning is that a church as a whole can lose its enthusiasm for the things of God. So be on the alert. Consequence of continued unrepentance. Christ would cause the church at Ephesus to cease to exist if it did not repent. Remember, therefore, from when we were fallen, repent and do the works at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now remember, again, the lampstand is the church. And the aspect of removing it from its place is the church no longer existing, the, the church closing its doors. So remember that the lampstand is the visible local church. For Revelation 1.20 says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If they fail to repent, Christ will bring the church to a close. I will come to you as the one who walks among the churches, as the one who cares for the churches, as the one who has those uh, churches in his grips. I will come to you and I will take that lampstand and just move it. I will take it away. You will close your doors. You will cease to exist. So what is very important to see in this verse is that the closure of the church is the result of the judgment of Christ. 
I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. It is not that the closure is due to a result of satanic powers that overcome the church. That's not the warning. Uh, if you don't repent, then Satan is going to get his victory. Uh, Satan is going to overwhelm you. Satan's going to conquer you. And you're going to cease to be a witness for me. Nor is the church's closure a natural result of people gradually losing interest and faithfulness over time. Uh, he's not saying, well, the church is just going to peter out. If you are just working and doing these things uh, out of a sense of duty, eventually that sense of duty is going to be lost, and eventually the church is going to close. That's not what he says either. It is Christ who closes the church, for he is not pleased with their lack of love for him. Here we see how tremendously important the motivation is in doing a deed and not just the deed itself. First Corinthians 13, which we heard sung tonight, uh, says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's important to realize in this, this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that it is able to do those things without being loving. Uh, many times we equate those things with love. If you do these things, you're a loving person. But it's saying it's possible to do all these things, even uh, to the point of delivering up your body to be burned but not be motivated by love. And it says, if that's the case, you gain nothing. Uh, so if we get to the place where we are, as a church, totally devoid of love, we are profitless for the kingdom of God. Our witness has come to an end. And God says, uh, in the person of Christ, I will come, I will remove you. And so, number uh, Roman numeral uh, five here, one can only wonder how many churches close today because of a lack of fervent love for Christ. Uh, we are living in a uh, time in which, in the United States of America, there are five churches closing for everyone that opens. That's the relation. That's the ratio. For every church that opens, five are closing. Uh, part of that is due to the mega church movement and uh, people uh, leaving the smaller churches and going to the bigger churches. But I wonder, without having the veil rent and being able to see into the mind of God, but knowing the warning, uh, how many churches close because of this lack of fervency uh, for Christ, having lost the first love uh, of uh, not having the, the saving faith, uh, dutifully keeping on for a period of time, but eventually God brings them to a close. I submit to you it's a very real uh, possibility. And then once again, Christ praises the church for hating what he hates. 
Yet this you have. So he's saying this in a positive way. You hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I include this praise here and not with the earlier praise given to the church because the text places this verse after the command to repent of their lack of love. Here again is a balance in the passage itself. Um, You have these praises that are given. You have this warning about a lack of love. And you actually now have praise for their hatred. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nickelodeons, which I also hate. B, it is intended to make it absolutely clear that what they are to love is Christ. They are not called to be more loving in general. Uh, He isn't telling them that they are wrong all of a sudden for their having uh, tested these apostles and found them to be false. Uh, The love here is not to be indiscriminate. Uh, It it is not to be casual. Uh, It is is not to be uh, without discernment. Uh, But just as we are to love Christ, we are to love God with our heart and all our soul and all our mind, uh, so too uh, we are to hate the works of iniquity. So then loving Christ, they are also to hate what he hates. So we find out that God, who is a God of love, is also a God of wrath. There again is the the balance. Uh, The point is, we should love what he loves, we should hate what he hates. So the question is, how does this square with the New Testament teaching of loving your enemies? Well, it is not the Nicolaitans themselves that the Ephesians are to hate. The Ephesians are to hate the teaching and practices of the Nicolaitans. In Psalm 45 verse 7, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's what they're to hate. They are to hate wickedness, and they are to love righteousness. And the Nicolaitans, and we don't know much about them. Uh, In fact, we know virtually nothing about them in terms of... (coughs) And uh, how they acted... But uh, we are told from church history by Irenaeus, and we don't know how accurate it is, but Irenaeus uh, attributes uh, Nicholas to being one of the men that are mentioned in the book of Acts uh, that uh, become what many people think of the first deacons. Uh, those people that uh, are uh, a part of uh, that time when uh, the uh, widows are being neglected and the apostles say, we're not going to quit teaching. Uh, we're not going to uh, quit our ministry of the word of God. We're going to give ourselves to, to preaching and we're going to give ourselves uh, to uh, prayer uh, Find among you uh, other people. There's no way for us to know that with certainty. There's a lot of uh, speculation that uh, Irenaeus was guessing at that point. Uh, He was far removed from the time. So we really don't know. But the point is uh, that we need to be on guard. Uh, We need to be aware uh, of those that would teach uh, and practice unrighteousness. 
there are a lot of Christians, or at least professing Christians, that have books out that justify all kinds of unrighteous behavior and conduct. Um, we need to hate that. Uh, we, we need to hate when the, the church compromises uh, on its moral standing, when it compromises on the truth. God loves when we stand up for the truth. But when we stand up for the truth, it can't be devoid of love. When we stand up for the truth, it can't be with harshness. It can't be out of arrogance. You know, some people stand up for the truth simply because they want to prove other people wrong. Uh, they, they want to win an argument. Uh, so many times in uh, Bible college and seminary, uh, people will sit around a table and they will argue theology and sometimes get really mad at their, their brother for believing something different than what they do. And so often it's not about truth. It's about trying to prove themselves right. It's, prob- it's about trying to show their intellectual prowess. Uh, it's about trying to get the upper hand. It's about so many things. Uh, so we have to have the right balance, okay? We can't be so loving that we aren't willing to stand for the truth, that we aren't willing to confront others when they are teaching what is error. And at the same time, as we stand up for the truth, uh, we've got to be sure that uh, we haven't just started standing for the truth without a true love for God. Uh, the Pharisees are individuals that would be good examples of people that were standing for the truth as they saw it without a love for God and without a love for others. Promise to the conquerors. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In the Garden of Eden, the way to the tree of life was blocked due to the sin of Adam and Eve, and fellowship with God was broken. Galatians, uh, Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take hold also of the tree of life and eat and live forevermore. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the truth of life. And the paradise of God speaks of a never-ending fellowship with God. There is no fear that our love for God will ever grow cold. The tree of life is given for life and healing. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on every side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Thus, in the paradise of God, our love for Christ will never grow cold. The exhortation is now given to individuals to heed what is being said to the church. He, has, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So 
the application moves from the church to the individual. We've been talking about the church as a whole. And now it moves to the individual. And it says to the individual, take heed what is said to the church. Okay, be careful that your love for, for Christ doesn't grow cold. That you don't get to a place where you're doing all your Christian duty out of a sense of tradition, a sense of obligation, a sense of guilt. You know, I don't know what brought you back here tonight. Uh, I don't know why uh, you sign up to do the things that you do. I'm grateful. Uh, and this isn't to say that coming back tonight might have been a hardship. Uh, coming back tonight, there could have been competing things that you would want to do. You may be sitting here with a headache. You may be uh, tired. Uh, you may be thinking, I've got a full day tomorrow. I've got all these things I have to do. Um, I appreciate the perseverance. That's praiseworthy. That's good. That's commendable. Hang in there. But don't allow yourself to get to the place where that's your sole motivation. And you have just entered into this lovely, loveless marriage with Christ. To me, that speaks volumes, this, this picture of a loveless marriage. I hope you can understand what that is. Uh, it's so sad when you see married couples that just don't seem to have anything in common any longer. Uh, they don't enjoy being together. Uh, they don't want to spend time together. They are living two separate, independent lives. Just under the same roof. They're just going through the motions. Well, may that we never allow that to happen in our relationship to Jesus Christ. May we never just go through the motions. And uh, the scripture says if we get like that, we need to repent. We need to ask God to restore within us that love that we once had. Help us to, once again, see the joy of being forgiven. Um, the psalmist David, in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, talks about his life and how cold he had become in his relationship uh, to God. Psalm 32 depicts that. He says in Psalm 32, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned to the drought of summer. Selah. Uh, life was just so burdened after that. And in Psalm 51, you have that great prayer of uh, David. And one of the things he prays is, uh, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Um, if you're losing it, uh, pray tonight. May God restore to me. Uh, may you do a work in me that once again, I'm really grateful. I'm really thankful. I really want to serve you. And maybe it doesn't change anything outwardly that you're doing. For you are currently serving him. But it might inwardly 
bring a tremendous uh, change in the way in which you go about serving the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, help us uh, to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Uh, Lord, uh, there are many of us who've been saved for many, many years and have served you for many, many years. And I know that you are pleased with the dedication. I know that you take joy in the commitment. That, uh, Lord, you realize that it requires patience. It requires endurance. It requires hard work. It requires labor. Uh, Lord, that isn't always pleasant. It isn't always joyful. It's not that we are to be always smiling and uh, always in a sense of ecstasy. But Lord, may we never get to the place where we are truly loveless, where all sense of joy in serving you is gone, that all we see is drudgery, all we see is hard work, all we see is labor, and there's no sense of appreciation and delight. We lose the sense of privilege. Oh Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.